This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the southernmost point of door to the lands of always winter and what is west of Westeros and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk. Hey everybody, I'm Ken Napsuck and welcome back to the Game of Thrones rewatch. Waiting for some bigger news to break. We'll do another news show. We'll do another question show soon. Uh, Right now though, we are smack dab in the middle of season four. We've reached the actual middle. Episode 5, first of his name. Last week with Oathkeeper, we talked a lot about the midpoint vibes of the actual show. The old classic screenwriting technique of midpoint, we could actually apply it to last week's episode a lot. And I think uh, that kind of applies to this week's episode as well. So, without further ado, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to Cashly Talk. Subscribe to the YouTube channels. We build that out as we get towards... House of the Dragon, and Rings of Power. Episode 5 of Season 4 is also uh, the second uh, back-to-back episode here for Michelle McLaren, and I think that is a powerful choice for these uh, two episodes, but particularly this one. We're going to dive in on the show that was originally aired May 4th, 2014. Star Wars Day, like several years ago now. That's crazy to think. What, about eight years ago? Time has no meaning, as we always discuss here. But, uh, hey, no Star Wars in this day. This is a big Game of Thrones day. The writers, Benioff and Weiss, the credited writers. This one's cinematographer, once again, Robert McLaughlin, editor Crispin Green. This episode, as is uh, the case often with a lot of Game of Thrones episodes during this time, broke its own record. First viewing record, 7.16 million people tuned in to watch this episode. This is a quieter episode as we look at it from an overall perspective. It's got a lot of those classic Game of Thrones uh, one-on-one conversations that just uh, thrill us almost as much as the action, which is, uh, you know, one of the calling cards of the show, especially a calling card of the show in the earlier seasons. This episode doesn't disappoint, but it does lead up to some of our biggest action yet in this season. And that, of course, is what happens up at Craster's Keep with the Mutineers. And uh, John, Locke, uh, Ed, and Grant, and the rest of the uh, brothers heading up there to uh, wipe out the Mutineers and uh, destroy, uh, in the end, destroy Craster's Keep. But we'll get to that in the lessons attached to that. Uh, interesting to know, just because, yeah, this was a, a type of... A Game of Thrones is always... 
a slow burn at the start. I think that's um, one of the the traits and one of the the things it's known for. But then uh, you you go back to May fourth, two thousand fourteen. I think there was those discussions of you said the season's moving kind of slow. The season's moving kind of slow. So I think to get this burst of action, it kind of whet our appetite for the bloody Game of Thrones action we do love. Uh, it's it, it's interesting to note though for myself personally and my perspective on it. I always have uh, said in recent years that I don't know season three doesn't hold up for me as much. Meaning I enjoy the hell out of the season, but ah, I think it's remembered for some big things, including the red wedding, the Dracarys moment, and I don't know some of the other stuff kind of just uh, slips out of my mind. And, and I think I've changed my stance on that a lot and that season three is big for a lot of the big um, themes and uh, important goals for characters, big decisions, a lot that happens in the end ties to season three. Season four, I'm going through that kind of thing again where I've always been a fan of season four. Again, love all the seasons, uh, but you can't help but kind of rank some above the others. But time, as, as time moves on, I've looked at season four a little different and, and, and recognize that what it really is is just... It is truly the midpoint. It's truly the characters looking at their past, looking at their uh, future, and deciding which way to go, taking what was uh, once, uh, you know, what they were in the past, trying to uh, move it into that future. And therefore, I think you do get a lot of quieter scenes, a lot of uh, slower-paced episodes. And this is one where even this week when I sat down to watch it, I kind of had that, oh, yeah, 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 we're, we're going we're gonna to finish this one so we can get some of the, the bigger stuff. Then, as you as you get into it, as you break uh, break it all down, there's some wonderful things, some big things. They're just slower, quieter, emotional beats. So I think that's what this episode is definitely uh, remembered for. Uh, what we always love looking at the reaction then and the legacy now. The nice thing is this: the reaction back then, coming off of uh, some more controversial Game of Thrones moments. Uh, this episode, I think, was uh, it's positively remembered, and there's such a giant uh, reveal in it. I think that was the conversation, and that was kind of nice. Uh, nice, and I think that is part of this legacy now, and what this episode is known for. Definitely um, uh, known for Tommen being crowned, which was something that was not uh, in the books directly. It was just kind of assumed that Tommen just suddenly uh, had a had a crown on his head. So we get to actually see that, and it's a small little uh, moment at the beginning, but it's it's uh, big for, I think, the entire uh, show and what this episode is remembered for. Uh, more than maybe Tommen's coronation is that Marjorie and Cersei scene. We'll get into that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I think this is, a, you can also say this episode is known for the return of Liza Aaron and uh, Robin, Robert Aaron, her son. Uh, because they hadn't been seen since season one, and uh, you know the, those were the, the you know they had done there were some memorable things they did in season one related to breastfeeding uh, that uh, they you know we hadn't seen them since then, and so to to have them back. Kate Dickey in the role of Liza Aaron is so good. Uh, but then the opening shot is uh, <laughs> Robin. He's not eating, but he, he may be thinking about it. Uh, wonderfully weird in that Game of Thrones way. So good to have them back and important to the show as well and the story. And then I also think this episode is known for, or at least should be known for, being one of the more female-centered episodes uh, with Michelle McLaren's direction. I think she gets so much important things, a lot of poignant moments with the female characters. see a lot of the land through their eyes, uh, see a lot of what is happening to them through their eyes. Uh, it's got some powerful um, quotes and statements, but beyond just that, it, it really uh, gives the female characters a lot of the spotlight Game of Thrones does have a wonderful amount of great female characters. 
Um, but, you know, show can't help having kind of a, the old classic male gaze, just having that uh, male perspective with a, with a male-dominated director, uh, staff, and writer's room. Uh, so this episode it does stand out for me is uh, really taking its time and, and treating these uh, characters with, you know, respect, which, which is done, I think, for the most part. In the, in the rest of the show, there are some beats that come to mind. Uh, but this one, just uh, you really, really get to feel it. And then I think even you know, the big, uh, there's a great big Cersei quote we'll talk about, even at the end with Craster's uh, keep and uh, his uh, daughters and wives there, and decision they make. A real powerful, a female-centered episode. Uh, and then I think what this episode is most known, known for, and what I think the conversation was back in the day, Quite a big reveal. It's the big Baelish reveal. Baelish was behind it all, uh, which is interesting because, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not a surprise. And I think a lot of uh, signs were pointing to us, uh, us to that direction. But this is also one of those kind of like if you're a book reader, too, you're like, oh, OK, now that's probably part of it. We'll see how that plays out even more in the books, of course. But for the show, this is huge. And I just uh, remember taking myself back there to 2014. I just absolutely, uh, again, not not that I was surprised. I was, I was kind of hoping this was the case. And so to get that confirmation in uh, the great Baelish and Liza Aaron scene, because, uh, you know, last week, the, the previous episode, uh, you got the big mystery of, of Joffrey's murder and they, they handle that they reveal all that plot and those are those plot reveals are usually what uh, fuels the conversation around shows like this and uh you know i think that can keep you from digging into the big why of those scenes which is why we're doing this rewatch but i think it's also these, these reveals are just fun and this baelish one was one of my favorite reveals. I mean, it's kind of the reveal in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, season six. Yeah, yeah, we got some stuff with John. Yeah, we got some stuff with uh, uh, Robert Baratheon and, and uh, Leanna Stark. I think there's some big, big reveals. But this is for the show, for uh, the story, uh, This learning that Baelish is uh, kind of at the center of all, kind of the reason for it all, uh, creating true chaos was just fun. And it's good to have those fun moments. We love looking at the impact of uh, the story and maybe on us as the audience, without a doubt, Baelish being behind it all was huge. Uh, but I think even perhaps, uh, I don't want to say bigger than that, but we've been tracking Danny, Danny's journey, and Danny uh, now going to Marine. And I think this is this is the big moment. It's very pivotal. It's, it's her choosing to stay in Marine, part of the big theme of this episode. I think the episode deals a lot with the old tried and true uh, destiny and choice and destiny versus choice, something that's very big in the Star Wars world as well, very big in any kind of modern fable or fairy tale of these stories meant to entertain but also enlighten. Destiny's always big, but I think choice is more important. And Danny choosing to stay in Marine, setting up her long uh, kind of run in Marine full of important lessons, big trials, big losses, uh, things that I think build her up, up but also start to undercut her. Uh, a lot of the way she's treated, a lot of the way she's received. I think once again, Danny makes a, a choice that is uh, built on empathy, built on trying to understand more, trying to be better, and trying to learn how to rule. All those things, some of it just directly stated in the episode. Um, 
but I think it's big and it's pivotal and might have, to me, more long-lasting effect on the story than Baelish's uh, plot reveal of something that's already happened that's put a lot of these other things in motion, a lot of these other things in motion. But I think Danny's has more bigger impact on the overall Game of Thrones story, but we can talk about that later. I also think uh, two minor uh, impact on the story and us as an audience moments. Uh, the mind's running dry, and, and Tywin kind of admitting that uh, to Cersei in that great scene, I think it has its small impact, but it does set other things in motion, uh, including kind of uh, you know, positioning the Iron Bank as a true power, which the Iron Bank's going to factor in pretty quickly in this season with Stannis and Davos, and we got that next time out. Uh, but I think it's a big reveal because during, you know, this entire time, the Lannisters are the power in the land. I would say Tywin has been for a long time the most powerful man in the land. And now uh, his power is a little bit based on shadows and lies at this point. Uh, it is uh, don't look behind the curtain. That gold you think we have that even Cersei's like, I don't know, pounds, ounces, tons. What is it? Doesn't matter. The answer is the same. Big reveal. Maybe more to the characters in the story than us as an audience. But I think it's important as well. And I think uh, at the end, Ghost. Uh, and John reuniting. It's a smaller impact, I guess, but it's a heartwarming impact. And I've always enjoyed that. Who doesn't enjoy Jon Snow just going, oh, come here, boy, and giving his wolf a good uh, scratch on the neck, right? Who doesn't love that? Uh, in tracking these uh, episodes on the rewatch, we love looking at things that have a little more foreshadowing, a little more meaning to them uh, than uh, they did maybe on first viewing or even, uh, you know, subsequent viewings before the show ended. Uh, there's always going to be a lot in each episode, and sometimes they're little Easter egg type references, and other times they just kind of remind us that bigger things are coming. And I think the Hound talking about the Clegane Bowl, the Clegane Bowl that we would eventually get, eventually get. I think it was important, but also uh, I really love watching this scene and comparing it to the end of uh, Arya and Hound's journey. Truly one of the more interesting, compelling, and important and poignant journeys in the show and in terms of pairings and a lot of these characters being paired together. Uh, Arya, Hound, Jamie, Brienne, um, you know, Tyrion and Wine. I, I, th- I think uh, this is one of the more important ones. And just to hear them kind of talking about hate and revenge and their paths forward and, and the list and the mountain, both wanting to kill him and uh, I, I, even Arya taking the stab at the hand we'll talk about. I just uh, think there's more meaning attached to that now, knowing what happens and knowing the final lesson I think the hound gives Arya, uh, which is uh, one of my favorite in the show. Uh, we get the first uh, mention, confirmation of the Sand Snakes, eight in total, but we would only get threes, you know. Uh, in retrospect, the Dorn uh, arc, uh, it, yeah, it's it's it can leave, it left a lot on the table. Uh, love reading some of the perspectives of the producers and creators uh, in that book, A Fire Cannot Kill Dragon, and them kind of understanding that, hey, maybe it would have been best if we just even go down to Dorne. But I think the, I think they needed to take that chance. I needed to think they, they needed, the, they needed to take that opportunity. And we'll talk about it when we get to season five. But at this point, especially back in 2014, and if you're a, a you know, smug, snobby book reader, the mention of uh, Oberyn and his uh, eight daughters uh, got the got us all excited. And I remember just telling some friends, oh, wait till you meet the Sand Snakes. You know, we wouldn't get all of them. But I think that was okay. I think it was the bigger picture we'll talk about there that might have suffered. Um, and then the, just the, you talk about foreshadowing and things with more meaning. You got to mention Oberyn, Cersei. They got that great scene 
but just kind of uh, when she's talking about power and the lessons of power and, and how you can or cannot protect those that you love. And Oberon just kind of has this little line about, you know, you can avenge them, which we know is what he's trying to do. And that being his focus, understandably, a cause I'm behind, but that being his focus is part of what is his, uh, becomes his undoing. So just to kind of see it there, almost in a little side, almost like a little quiet moment, but him just like, yeah, yeah, you know what you can do? You can avenge them. And you can be so focused on that vengeance that you can uh, lose your own life and maybe lose the bigger battle. Uh, I also love some of the stuff that Carl Tanner, uh, Bern Gorman, so good as Carl, as I said on last week's uh, episode or last time out, I, you know, I just don't love a lot of the mutineer stuff. And a lot of it might be because I think Bern Gorman is just so good at just being a shite and just being icky and violent and wrong. And that's, I think, looking back, why initially I didn't react to the mutineers uh, storyline. Uh, in the best of ways. And a lot of it back then was me kind of uh, pounding my my t- a, a hand on the table going, ah, this isn't in the books, this isn't in the books. I, I think it's important for the show. I think it works on the show now that I look, up, look at it with a few years gone. But I still, uh, the whole stuff, the whole sequence is a little icky. But I love, but again, I think that's because of Bern Gorman. And I love the stuff he says here. Something will... Here again, said to John, stuff from, uh, I think of Alistair Thorne. Uh, he comes to mind towards uh, the end of his uh, life. Uh, when, he, when Carl Tanner tells John that you'll never be free, you'll never know what it's like, him claiming that the mutineers up here are free, they don't live under the, the yoke of uh, the Night's Watch or any Lord Commander, uh, this idea of freedom, this idea of Jon Snow just being so in service to the land, to the world, to the characters that he's trapped by it. Uh, which is an interesting comment on, uh, you know, again, honor. We'll get to some of the big themes and lessons, but honor and and choice, destiny, all these wonderful things. And here's uh, Carl Tanner, one of many people who's uh, saying this to John. And from one perspective, I don't think it's wrong. Um, I just think they're a little off base on it. But then John, knowing that eventually in his own way, uh, does achieve some sort of freedom, but he never moves off of what he is. And, and I think it's debatable if, if Carl's uh, completely right here. Uh, but um, it's just a fun moment. It's something that it, it's thrown in John's face a lot. You'll never be free. You'll never be free. And he's trying to, uh, you know, he's trying to do uh, right by the land, right by the world. And uh, it does cost him. It does, uh, you know, uh, you know, you could probably feel trapped like that, but uh, I don't necessarily think that's what John feels until he knows it's time to go. But anyways, we'll get to season eight when we get to season eight. This episode, for being what I would say is a quieter episode, what what is a um, slower-paced episode with the, without the burst of action uh, factoring at the end there, it's full of so many great scenes. So many great scenes. And that's what I love uh, on doing this uh, rewatch and looking back on these shows. Even when it's uh, an episode like this one where I kind of thought, oh, okay, we carve out some time to rewatch this. I always rewatch them twice and, uh, you know, make notes throughout them and everything. But, like, I was like, ah, this might be a little work. This doesn't stand out as my favorite episode. And then, bam, right from the beginning, the coronation. Uh, then you got that Marjorie and Cersei scene, which begins, of course, with Marjorie looking uh, down at Tommen, giving him, you know, the smile, kind of a wave. Tommen gives her the nod. Hey, honey, we're going we're gonna to be married. We're, it's all going to be good. And then Cersei moving into frame, like, whoop, like it's a, 
you know, uh, almost a rom-com or mother-in-law kind of moment. It's it's hilarious and frightening at the same time. And to see these two performers, uh, Natalie, Dor- Natalie Dormer, uh, Dormer and uh, Lena Headey, uh, just going head-to-head, but in this subtle, quiet, reserved way. They've, you know, gone at each other for uh, a, a while now. Uh, we know that Marjorie is such a threat to Cersei. Uh, we know that Cersei is just a threat to anyone, and Marjorie has to respect that. Uh, all that goes into this moment. You know, we've seen, we got the moment uh, in, in the past with, uh, you know, uh, Cersei explaining the reigns of Castamere to Marjorie. We got that scene, and that's in the back of Marjorie's mind. Uh, I think she kind of felt she lost that round, and here's Marjorie with another chance to get uh, some sort of victory. And it has, the, it has a little bit of the teacher and the student vibes. I will say for this episode, um, uh, I don't know if uh, I mean, Marjorie's still learning. She's just an A plus student, <laughs> but uh, Cersei is uh, definitely in a bit of a power position here. But I love the I love the the vibes. I love that uh, they're both playing it a little weird, playing it different, and Cersei just kind of having so many of these layered motivations and reasonings. And this is what I think I love about. Seriously, love Marjorie, love Nat- Natalie Dormer as as Marjorie, of course. But this, I just this episode has, <coughs> excuse me, so many moments that I think are indicative of why we love Cersei, and a lot of us love Cersei. From episode one on, she is positioned as a villain, but slowly, just like a lot of the characters, Jamie included, the Hound included. If you go back to those first couple episodes. They are positioned as villains, and then that starts to unravel. Your ideas of them have to change. And I think a lot of ways this leads up to the end of season six for Cersei uh, and taking that big (laughs) vengeful wine sip as the world burns around her because she destroys all her villains. Um, And then seven and eight is a different conversation. I, 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 I think... There's some great stuff with Cersei, but there's just less stuff. Again, she's queen, and there's some wonderful stuff. I don't want to undercut anything, and I'm a fan of Cersei's ending. But if you look at season one, episode one, all the way up to the end of season six, there's kind of this big run of Cersei uh, where she lets you in, and there's moments of, of her being very real. There's some great vulnerability in these two scenes. We're talking about this first one with Marjorie and Cersei, but you also have uh, Cersei and... Obrin and that great scene, the later part of the episode. And both those moments contain this wonderful, wonderful vulnerability by Cersei that you have to believe she's always probably playing the game, right? She's always believing the power is power. I have that t-shirt too. It's a great t-shirt to wear, but it's, it's, uh, it's a dangerous belief, I think. But that aside... Cersei is always playing it. You win or you die. She feels she has to. But even with her father, there's some moments of vulnerability in this episode, uh, in this scene with Marjorie and Cersei. I wonder. I don't necessarily have the answer. It's one of those ones I don't even know if I want the answer. As she's having this conversation with Marjorie, in which she's essentially saying, hey, you still want to be queen? That it, it's advantageous to a lot of parties for you to, to marry Tommen. 
You want to be queen? Marjorie's playing coy. I hadn't even thought about what happens next. She's still mourning Joffrey. I love Cersei. Cersei just answers all of that gaming with her own kind of power move, that move being the truth. He would have been your nightmare. One of my favorite lines. Uh, that whole moment of he did things that shocked me. Am I easily shocked? Do I look like someone that's easily shocked? No. What he did shocked me. It's truth. It's confession. But it is a game. It is a move. And I think Cersei uses this vulnerability uh, to, to, to try to get what she wants with Marjorie. But again, I wonder if at this point she's thinking maybe because protecting Tommen is now so important to her. If there's a moment where she realizes, I do, I do think the best path forward protecting Tommen might be Marjorie. That I can't necessarily do it. I couldn't do it with Joffrey. I, I didn't do it with Marcella. She was ripped away from me. And you have a lot of the Marcella, uh, Marcella stuff later with, with Oberyn in this episode. So perhaps in this moment, I don't know. I have a big question mark in the end of this uh, sentence here. But does she believe that Marjorie can help protect him? And that's why there's a moment of vulnerability, a moment of let me give you this truth. And maybe not that we can work together. Not that Cersei wouldn't have Marjorie removed some other way uh, down the line. But just that her ultimate goal of protection for Tommen, protection for family, protection for uh, dynasty and legacy and all those things she's always talking about with her father. Um, and then they have the scene a little bit later on, if there's some truth to it there. I don't know. They're trying to outguess each other. I think Marjorie's surprised by some of the confessions, maybe retroactively frightened by some of the confessions. And I don't think anyone for a second, including Cersei, believes Marjorie saying, ah, I, you know, I don't know if I even want to be queen now. I don't know. No one believes that. But at some point, you maybe just have to take it on face value. And I think Cersei has a little bit of that too, um, which might lead that. I think that kind of leads to her being honest. But then I think it all um, comes crashing down around Marjorie here when uh, Marjorie stings a little bit too much at the end. I think Marjorie is one of my favorite characters. I think Marjorie makes a slight mistake in the war with Cersei. I really do think in this episode, and rewatching it uh, uh, twice this morning, just seeing. That little sting at the end. She just can't help. Boop. And uh, the face kind of turns on Cersei as if to say, well, well, all right, all right. We're not working together. I gave the opportunity, but no thank you. Uh, so love all that. Such a great scene. And jumping back, uh, jumping ahead to the uh, Cersei and, and Oberyn scene. This is, again, where Cersei, I think, surprises Oberyn with her vulnerability. He has absolutely no love for the Lannisters. We all know this. He's very, very vocal about it. He plays the game well here. And we see the side of him. We see a good side of him, the writing them uh, bad poetry, allegedly, to uh, his uh, daughter, the, the uh, Elia uh, Sand, who is uh, named after his sister, of course, his eldest with Elaria. I think so you, you see that side of him. And I think, especially when we're watching this season play out, we're really rooting for him by this point. We really like this guy, but this is one of the, you know, getting to see, we've seen the violent side, we've seen the sexy side, now we get to see the poetry side. Uh, so uh, Oprah's firing in all cylinders here, but I think this really is Cersei's scene. I really think this is another moment of vulnerability, and Oprah sees what truly motivates her. She has that conversation with Tywin. She's, you know, Basically saying, we know it's a false belief that Tyrion killed Joffrey, but this idea of, you know, he's try he tried to burn it all down. My brothers don't get it. 
I get it. It's what she keeps trying to tell her father. Protect the family. Protect my children. That's all that is really in her mind. And at least at this point, I think the prophecy that we're going to deal with in season five, uh, minus the Valencar, of course, but that prophecy starts to undermine her, starts to shake the foundations. I absolutely think post-Tywin, Cersei makes some big mistakes in the name of her goals. Uh, but here, again, this big vulnerable moment, and I love everything about her really wanting to believe that Marcella's happy down in uh, Dorne. Uh, I love Oberyn's line about, in, you know, in Dorne, we don't hurt little girls, but I just absolutely um, adore, love, stand behind Cersei's response of everywhere in the world they hurt little girls. It's the truth. Um, Marcella's there. Um, okay. Happy, as we'll find out soon, falling in love, but not there by choice. Is there as a prisoner, essentially, there's a pawn. So even then, Dorn is hurting a little girl. So it's a truth from Cersei. It's what motivates uh, her so much in the sense of, of um, this land, this world has been completely horrible to her, and she's in a good position. Imagine what the others are going through. And uh, though Cersei has done some evil things, will do some evil things, the, the, the truth in her words, the vulnerability she's showing here, it is all part of the layers of Cersei. Lini Heaney uh, gets to uh, in so many ways. And this is why I do believe, when pressed, most people will say, eh, they're kind of rooting for Cersei at times. And when she sips that wine after uh, taking everyone out at the end of season six, maybe you didn't actually cheer, but deep down, you're thinking of scenes like these, you're thinking of her life, and maybe somewhere deep inside your soul, you were cheering for Cersei. Uh, jumping back up to some of my other favorite scenes here. We got some stuff, uh, great stuff with Danny. I don't like Dario. The reason I don't like Dario is I'm a Jorah guy, and he's in the way. Come on. Not that Jorah should be there, you know, but come on. Uh, but it does, it kills me to admit this, but I love when Dario's like, yeah, 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 we, uh, Second Sons took out the Marinese Navy. Uh, I heard you like ships, and she kind of has that sly smile to herself. You know, it's cool. It's cool, Dario. You're cool. I get it. I get it. I get it. I have to admit that. Uh, even Jorah might have to admit that. Uh, so I love all the things about this. We'll probably analyze this a little bit more, but I do love it's a little scene. It's it's Jorah, uh, Barristan, everyone uh, updating Danny on what's going on uh, uh, with, with Joffrey being dead, and then of course the update of what's going on in the other cities who are now uh, you know they've. She gave them freedom, but that freedom's being taken away by people who are filling the vacuum of power with their own desires and their own quest and needs for power. It's a dangerous thing, that power thing, right, huh? Um, but I, uh, one of the things I'll talk about, I do love this scene uh, and what it means. Great lines from Danny. I need to do more than that. I will do what queens do. I will rule. Love all that. But I, there's one little kind of um, a plot difference here that I want to discuss from the books. I don't love comparing them. Uh, as you all know, if you listen to the show, don't love doing the compare and contrast in the books anymore. It used to be fun to do. It used to be easy to do. I just think it's a big swing and a miss on the overall point of both properties. But there are all these changes along the way that come up. And if you read about it, and I was reading about one of these changes that uh, uh, people might have um, little quibbles with. But it's the the change that it, it, in, in the books um, – Second Sons don't take the Miranese uh, Navy with the, the what, 93 ships 
that would hold about 100 soldiers each. Uh, they burn some and the rest flee. And so Danny kind of is in a position where she can't leave Marine. She doesn't have the ships yet, which is something that, uh, you know, a little bit of that, the burning of the ships kind of happens later on. But for here in this moment, I think it's a powerful decision to uh, have her um, get what she wants, ships. We've been trying to get ships for a long time. She has it, which truly means she has a choice in front of her. And I think it's a big change. It's a big change for the show, and it works uh, and I love it. I love it. We'll, but we'll get to that uh, as it relates to the theme and lessons of these episodes here in a bit. But I love the scenes, love those moments. Got some great stuff with Baelish, of course. Um, and here, I don't know, you know, I'm talking about, I don't think this is one of the big themes of the episode, but just talking about the, the legacy and the impact this episode has on the story and us as an audience. I think you need to talk too. You got one hand, the stuff going on with Cersei, but over here you get the Baelish stuff. As he and Sansa approach uh, the veil, the bloody gate you get a great conversation more life lessons for sansa of course um but i love i love his line know your strength use them wisely and one man can be worth ten thousand know your strength is something that i do think's uh you know i'm not going to say i'm going to follow all of baelish's advice in uh, real life i do think it's a good piece of advice um but just it, you're seeing so much with him you're seeing that he, he gets to lies that you get the big reveal but beyond that, yes, the big reveal is so exciting. But now, years later watching it, the awkward makeout with Liza. Uh, her saying, uh, we already had our wedding night. Do, do you remember? And him just going, like it was yesterday. And you just feel the bile <laughs> coming up out of his throat. Um, everything about this, watching him work, watching as, as Liza, this person he has decided to spread chaos with, watching her uh, kind of just... You know, she's she's yelling the plot to us. She's revealing everything to the audience. And Baelish was like, shut up. I don't even want the audience to hear. And he gives her that big kiss at the end uh, and agrees to marry after he'd fought against this idea of uh, marrying there right now. He knows he needs to marry her. He needs to marry her so he can officially have, uh, you know, this kind of possession over the veil. Uh, but in the back of my head, I'm like, hey, a couple more days, he might have just killed her and figured it out. He just so loathes this woman, uh, and and I wonder how far back uh, he started hatching this plan and seeing how obsessed she was and what that could do. Uh, you know, who knows? Do we do we want a Baelish uh, uh, um, origin story prequel uh, adventure? I kind of do, based on this episode alone. Just wondering, uh, yeah, when did he start to kind of uh, pull lies into the fold, foster um, even more of an obsession, and, and think, how can I use that later? Because um, without a doubt, Cat was still the one. I don't know. Baelish will never get a chance to answer. But in, in talking about how this episode kind of reveals some of uh, the things we like about Cersei, maybe even at times love about Cersei, I think there's a lot of moments in this episode when you talk to those people who are like, oh, I love Baelish. I was kind of rooting for him. I think these kind of moments pop up. He's funny in his own way. He's uh, disgusted in his own way, which we kind of like and find entertaining and enthralling. And, you know, he is, uh, he is kind of a, 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 I don't want to say small folk, but he is, he is someone who's uh, risen above his status, fought and scraped for everything he's had, made something of himself, and knows his strengths, does that by knowing his strengths. He's just completely dangerous, completely deadly. And I think this season, uh, you're really seeing him advance uh, all the plots uh, forward for his benefit. And I think you're kind of rooting for him because he's just kind of so entertaining. 
Just my thoughts. I don't know. Nothing deep there on it. Just uh, tracking the love of Baelish because there's a lot of love of Baelish out there. I mentioned some of the uh, Tywin and Cersei moments and the reveal of the gold mines, uh, the Westerlands being kind of dried up. Just kind of love it. I just love anytime Cersei and Tywin are talking. Her constant pleas for him to like see her as the answer. He never fully does. I think that's all part of Tywin's undoing, the way he treats his own children, uh, uh, absolutely uh, factors into his end. So love all that. Just love them together. Charles Dance and uh, Lena Headey together are spectacular. I mentioned I love uh, Arya's stuff with the Hound. Anytime uh, Arya and the Hound are together, it's, it, it's, it's a sitcom we all want still. Um, and I, I, I love her list. I love the big reveal of uh, the last name being the Hound. Or not the reveal, but a great moment. They're so fun together. But I think just everything about her, uh, practicing the water dancing, the great lines, no one's going to kill me, the hound saying, they will, they will if you dance around like that. And uh, But pointing out, there's some valuable things going on between them for their own stories and their own lessons and their own hearts and souls here. When, when the hound says, he'll be, you know, he's dead like all the rest of your friends. There's a big truth to that. Uh, and whether or not... Arya's picking up on all that. I think she's still uh, obviously based in little anger. She'll be based in anger for a while, I think. Until the end, maybe. I don't know. And that's not wrong. Anger's not a bad motivation. Just I don't think you want to live in that. Which is what I think the Hound eventually teaches her. But the little lesson of the power of armor is uh, one of those things that just, you see it, it's in the show, it's pretty explicit. It's truly just about meaning how you protect yourself from that world, from this world, from any world. It's always what the hound's on about, about the lay of the land, the truth. I know how things are. When are you going to learn that? And the hound learns a lot about Arya here. He's learned along the way. We already, at the beginning, uh, when she even gets needled back, we, we've seen a lot of uh, her, um, uh, you know, penchant for violence is there, shall we say. I just, I love this moment. She just goes ahead and takes the stab. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. Little valuable lesson for them both. And uh, just learning the power of armor, which just means the power of uh, protecting yourself in this land. So we'll see how Arya does that on the road forward. I do love, uh, you know, in the Attack of the Mutineers, which I'm calling the first big splash of action, I love uh, love the stuff with uh, Jojen. I get a lot about the big themes here. Um, I really love uh, during the, uh, you know, where Carl, T- Carl Tanner's uh, coming there and, you know, about to, uh, 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 you know, um, rape Mira. No way to uh, run around that one. Uh, these aren't good folks. Uh, in that horrible scene, I, I love Jojen just looking Carl Tanner in the eyes and saying, I saw you die tonight. I just think that is such such a wonderful moment. He can't do much else. He can just say that. And it is uh, wonderful because as that happens, uh, the, the Night's Watch starts attacking. So if I'm if I'm Carl Tanner, I'm I'm dropping my sword and running. This this kid just said he sees the future. He says I'm gonna die tonight, uh, that I'm gonna burn, and uh now we're being attacked, I'm out of here. But Fortunately, he doesn't. Uh, in that tack, a couple moments that I do love. Uh, Hodor's kill on Locke is, uh, yeah, I like that. Score one for Hodor. Uh, and Rast getting his. Rast gets his. Thank you. Finally. Goes out the way he should. 
ghost mauling him. So there you go. Let's talk about the themes and lessons here in this episode and the time we have left here. This interesting, this episode has a, kind of a just a through line of what I call kind of checking in with the children, those trampled underneath by the wheel that is uh, spinning through the game of Thrones. Tommen, I even include Danny in here. You could include Cersei, uh, but I think Sansa, Arya, John, Bran, we're truly checking in on the Stark children here, the surviving Stark children. Uh, at, uh, minus one, this this we know. Um, well, two, counting Rob. Rest in peace, Rob. Um, but, uh, man, I got to tell you, like, uh, it's it's interesting to just, re- you're really, these are the four Starks, slash Targaryens, yes, I know, uh, who, who will factor in all the way to the ending. And we're just here at the midpoint of the story, checking in on what is happening. And they are all continuing to go through what I, you know, keep calling this midpoint kind of, uh, experience in terms of the story. Uh, so love that. And then, you know, I said checking in with the children, Tommen, we know what happens in the Tommen. Uh, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of generational change going on here. Uh, Cersei, uh, at this point, feels she can't get to the throne. So a bit of passing that on. The answer might be in Tommen. And let's not forget that Danny is a, a, a daughter uh, here of the Mad King, and uh, we're checking in with her and her mission and her life and her goals going forward. So I think that's a, a good, good way to start the episode, good way to start the discussion. Also, this idea of these two rulers coming into power, um, both uh, who will meet their uh, untimely uh, demises. Uh, that's Tom and, and Danny. It's interesting to see them both come in uh, to, to play here. We get a lot of lessons of what a good good ruler is here. And you have two different sides. Tom and the learning the lessons is just surrounded by handlers, where, where Danny is surrounded by advisors. Um, age might play a factor in that, but just to see uh, the differences there as they both come into power. Uh, just kind of love watching that. Uh, there is uh, this theme of enacting change. Uh, Danny's changes haven't uh, that she's made haven't stuck. Uh, the reign of Tommen might represent change. Like I said, a little bit of generational change coming. And uh, I think I, I love, I kind of love when everyone, you know, shouts out, long may he reign. And you see Cersei and you see Tywin. They both say it, both say it at the same time, but a little different uh, meaning behind it for each of them. So there's that. But I just want to get to the big one because it's all through this. There's some stuff that's going to come about lack of honor, something that's prevalent here in Game of Thrones a lot, um, power, what what the use of power is. Uh, but, man, I got to tell you, destiny and choice is the big one here. It just keeps coming back. Um, even if you listen to Benioff and Weiss talk about this episode, they do talk about destiny but then they talk about the choices and it's on display time and time again all through this episode the big ones of course are danny choosing to stay marine bran chooses to leave uh craster's keep and jojen directly says to him you have to decide so no ifs ands or buts this isn't a a, a, a theme that's hidden it's right there there's also this great stuff uh, that's going on with Bran this entire season. D.B. Weiss talks about it, uh, about Bran having to leave his past for an uncertain future, something we all have to do, and there's choices in that. Sansa has that uh, tense scene with Liza, the lemon cake scene, and at the end of that scene, she gets through it. She gets through Liza's outburst of, of anger and, and jealousy and crazy, to be blunt, and as she's being held by what she thinks is my only, like, surviving family, she learns that she's to marry Robin. 
crazy little breastfeeding kid, right, who just threw the, the toy, the gift that uh, Baelish got him, just threw him down the moon door. Something's not right here. Sansa learns, and I love that shot. I love Michelle McLaren focusing on Sansa in that moment, her eyes popping open, and just this idea of, uh, it's a repeating lesson for Sansa, but she has no choice. She is a pawn in the plan and has what she might feel at this point are no decisions in front of her. At the end of this season, we're going to get to that where Santa makes a big choice. Now, again, I say repeating lessons, and we're going to get bigger things and more um, destructive things to Santa, potentially destructive things to Santa later. But we are learning a lot because Santa's learning a lot, I should say. We're learning a lot with her. And I love that shot of her. In an episode that's talking about what is your destiny and what are the choices you're gonna, how, what are you gonna choose? How, what's your path forward? She has no choices, and Sansa's gonna learn to overcome that. She has to eventually, and she will. Podrick, good old Podrick, is there, and he's choosing to stay with Brienne. She releases him. You you don't, you're not have to, I don't need you as my squire. You don't have to be my squire. Get on out of here. Get on down the road. And he chooses to stay. It's a small example of this lesson, but he chooses to stay. And then in choosing to stay and, 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 and telling the truth and being vulnerable, vulnerability comes up a lot in these episodes. I think Danny's being vulnerable uh, when she's talking to Jorah and, and realizing what's gone wrong so far. But going back to this moment, Podrick chooses to stay. He's vulnerable. And then Brienne recognizes this. And then she chooses to keep him along because she needs him too. She needs him. She can't get the get the armor off. Uh, uh, you know, there's there it is on the surface. So I love that. Uh, the the power of, of choice. And both of them um, use that. And, and, and it will uh, it'll help them both a little bit later on. Uh, and the final big choice at the end, the women who survived, Craster and Craster's Keep, choosing their path forward, burn it down. Spitting on the ground. Love everything about that. Powerful example of choice. Powerful example of them saying, we're going to find our own way. We are going to find our own way. And I think uh, John, it, it affects John uh, as he goes through, uh, you know, a lot of that is the, the symbolism is John burning down this example of, of, of where the Night's Watch may have failed, including Jor Mormont, and that he wants to be something more above that, um, more more than that and above that. But, the Night's Watch, an honorable order. It hit its history. It's not honorable right now. The mutineers representing that. So I think he he agrees. He sees that burning down as uh, him trying to restore the luster. But I think it's much more than that. Uh, I do think uh, he's seen their choice and this idea of what you know, because he offers them to go to the wall where they'll protect them with my honor and everything and our great purpose to protect you. And, and he sees them choose a different kind of uh, way, which is this truly um, path of, of freedom. Something Carl Tannen has just been rubbing in his face, but it's, it's a different, it's a different vibe and all that's starting to factor into John. So love to see that, but the big one, uh, and we'll come back to some of the stuff with, with, Carl, uh, Tanner and John, but the big one, man, uh, yeah, Danny and Bran, um, both, uh, having this opportunity to go into different directions. This is why I like the decision to say that the second sons have given Danny the ships that she's always wanted. She's always wanted these ships. She's got them. She can do it. Can she get everyone over there? But no. 
And there is a push. Uh, Barristan saying, hey, we can do this. I think now's the time to strike. Uh, they've lost their king. They might be gaining another, or, but he's not a strong king. And, and, and it's the land uh, of Westeros might respond to you. I don't think that's necessarily wrong advice from Barristan. And he's, I don't know, I think Barristan's kind of representing this. Well, here's what you've been stating from the beginning before I even mentioned. This is what we are worried about over there in Westeros. This is what you want to do. That's the Iron Throne that you want, that you feel you got, you feel you can take. Just to go back to, to Karth and think of Danny yelling at the spice trader there. This is what she wants. This is what she feels is her destiny. But I have this strong belief, as I think a lot of these properties do, and, and, and they support this belief that destiny is just the thing that takes you to the next big choice. And then you have to make the choice about the best way to go forward. You might have this overriding uh, sense of destiny or sense of what you want to do and how can you get there. Uh, that might be in debate, but I think it is these choices that get you there. Danny still has this ultimate goal. She still feels she has this destiny, but she needs to make the better choice here and stay in Marine, learn to rule, show people, show Westeros that she can rule. It makes a lot of sense. And again, because it is an actual choice, I can take these ships and sail to where I've always said I wanted to go or I can stay because the land's behind me, the city's behind me that I freed. I was a breaker of chains. They're free no more. You got the reference to Cleon the Butcher. You got all the things going on. Um, obviously more of that uh, is played out in the books, but we don't need that here. We just need the why of this moment, the why of the situation. And we talk often here about Danny and Marine. And there's some frustrations coming, some bad lessons on the way, some bad things going to happen to her, some uh, compromises, tough decisions, losses, deaths, all the things we know. But it really does go to this moment. And I think it's the right decision. Again, how does Marine receive her? Not well. How does the world treat her? Not well. How does Westeros treat her and receive her? Not well. But Danny can't worry about that. In this moment, she can only do what she feels is right for her destiny. And she makes a great choice, the choice to stay. Whereas Bran makes this choice to leave uh, a sense of what was a sense of protection and safety. John being a sort of armor for him. He's so vulnerable out there. But Jojen is right. Jojen is presenting what could be this destiny, this greater purpose, which is often what destiny is about. Right. And. Bran makes the right choice here. He he knows that's the truth. John will keep him from that. John will not understand it. And Bran, in this moment, the Bran that we have known, including the Bran that got pushed and fell out of the tower, and to the, the Bran that we know will become the king. I think this is the pivotal moment. He could have turned back. Would have all been not. I guess the Night King would have won, right? But he doesn't get to all that unless he has the power to choose does he takes it he makes the right decision uh absolutely love that and that's interesting for me to to even talk about because i did not like this back in 2014 i thought it was a diversion i thought just was it was a almost plot filler i probably used those words in some of the shows uh i don't think i'd really gotten into my uh podcast punditry game of thrones days uh, season five with uh the Night of Stark podcast is where that really began. But I, I do remember talking, especially with friends, that I just, uh, probably in the old Schmo show too, it's probably where I remember talking about the most, of, it's not in the books, uh, even though, again, it's it, the mutineer stuff is, is they're there, they're mentioned, uh, something happens to them. Um, so it's already there, but 
the show takes the time to go there, and it makes sense just for the plot, like we talked about last week. Is you know, Mance Raider comes on them, they're, they're, comes upon them. They're they're gonna they're gonna absolutely tell them what's going on at the wall, and Mance is gonna attack full force, and it's over. Um, so that works in one sense, but I remember particularly did not like this moment. Did not like ah, oh, Bran and John are so close. Why can't John see and everything? I just and you know, and that was that. That's me playing on the surface of it, just to see this theme, which isn't even again a tremendously deep theme. We're not digging that deep to find this again. Jojen saying it. You have to decide. He's saying it. So the theme is there. Uh, now this moment just has a lot more meaning to me now that the story's complete. Now that I'm seeing it in a little bit of a different light, including Danny. Uh, staying in Marine. I love these choices. I love the lessons. Destiny and choice, it's big. Uh, what choice are you going to make? Might be what the show's asking, what this particular episode is. Final one, I do want to talk about this one. Honor is always discussed in Game of Thrones. Honor always comes up. What is uh, the best way? Uh, what is true honor? Power. How do you use your power and your position to maybe help others, protect others? That's a big thing in life. It's a big thing for Danny. Side note, I think, again, that's part of Danny's undoing. Part of what the foundation uh, the foundation starts to crack underneath her is she's doing right by the land, and the land is not doing right by her. And I, I think that's some of it. We'll discuss it down the line. But honor, all those kind of things. Jon Snow's honorable. So he has this fight with Carl Tanner, and, and uh, Tanner's just saying the stuff on the surface. You, you fight with honor. Same stuff that Braun and Servardus stuff comes up time and time again. But here, here's here's the, the 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 flip on it that I've watched it this time around, and what I really love about this stuff. John loses here. John is honorable, so he gets the, the, Carl Tanner spits in his face. Um, John's on the ground. John's gonna die. No one's gonna save him, right? No dragons coming in here. No no direwolves. Uh, Hodor. No giants. Nothing. He's dead. He's dead in this moment. Carl Tanner has won. And his uh, lack of honor is what is going to give him his victory. So there's a lot of focus on his death, which is one of probably the best kills in Game of Thrones. The sword to the back of the head coming out of, uh, it looks like he's barfing up the sword. It was so, I remember the first time just maybe jump back and kind of a little shock. Wasn't expecting that. It's one of my favorite kills. So you might think there's a little bit of John saying, he's right. I've stabbed him in the back of the head. I dipped my honor to get this victory. I don't know if that's 100% right. I, I, I open it up to all of you on there on the floor here. I, I really think this lesson is that Carl Tanner is sitting there saying, you don't have honor, I do. I'm defeating you right here. But he's killed by uh, one of Craster's wives, the one that he was uh, sitting right next to him the whole time, every time we saw him. Every time, uh, um, you know, we went to the mutineers, we know he's brutalized her. We know he's raped her. He's done some horrible things. He's done nothing with honor towards her or anyone at Craster's Keep. It is Carl Tanner's lack of honor that gets him killed. And I think that's the statement in this moment. It isn't that Jon Snow stabbed him, simply that he stabbed him in the back of the head. This idea of that isn't honor, that he should have killed him from the front or something like that, or he, he fought dirty. No. No, I, I don't think that's it. I think Carl Tanner's lack of honor that he's so proud of is what gets him killed in this moment. And John now is, I call it the idea of it, it's honor, power, and the need to protect. John at this point is using his powers, his skills, and using this position uh, to kill Carl Tanner, to protect her, and to protect everyone else here uh, at Craster's Keep, to get the win at Craster's Keep, so to speak. So I think that's what this thing's about. 
And it's a big, it's a smaller moment. It's a smaller lesson for this episode. And in a way, it's John perhaps making his own choice here too. How best to use my power? How best to use my skills? What are my goals? So I think John too feels he has a destiny. How's he going to fill that? He makes an important choice uh, and gets this brutal kill and offers this, hey, let me take uh, you all down to the Night's Watch with us. They're like, no, we're good. You want to stay here at Craster's Keep? Absolutely not. Burn it down. We're going to make our own way. We're going to make our own way. We just want to be free. All the stuff starts rolling around John's head, but he makes the choice to get to this point, point, uh, and I love it. I think destiny and choice is the big statement, uh, the big theme in this episode. Season four, episode five, the first of his name. Long may he reign. Love it. That's my uh, look back at this episode. Next up, we are going to start. Uh, wow, we've got uh, we've got the trial. The trial is about to begin. Uh, we've got a lot of big things coming. Season four, is it slower? Is it a little bit of a slow burn? Maybe. Maybe, but don't forget, at the end of it all, we have one of the biggest one-on-one fights and one of the biggest deaths in the show, and we got a giant battle. Perhaps uh, it's in the running for the best battle Game of Thrones, but just one of the best episodes, I think, of television ever. Watchers on the wall. That is all coming, but we've got to begin the trial, so we will get to that next time out here on the Casterly Talk Game of Thrones rewatch. Thanks for listening. We're always a podcast first, but uh, we do uh, tape my face or anyone else who's on the show and put it up on the YouTube channel, so give us a sub over there on the YouTube channel. Just search Casterly Talk and you'll find us. Don't forget again to subscribe wherever you want to get your podcasts so you can uh, never miss an episode of Casterly Talk. You can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash catnapsucker. Just give me a follow, Instagram, Twitter, and tell the world. That's more than uh, anything. Tell the world you love listening to Game of Thrones uh, talk, rewatches, discussion, theme breakdowns, news, and more, including, like I said, Lord of the Rings, Ring of Rings of Power. We're going to be looking at that, too. So a lot, of com- a lot coming. Tell the world, and we will be back next time here on Casterly Talk. Thanks for listening.